Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on exploring and unearthing the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. With each passing year, the interconnectedness of our world, including economies, markets, governments, businesses, human relationships, and so on, deepens. Now, in a perfect world, all of this seamlessly fits together. Well, we know that is not reality. However, that is where my next guest fits in. He works in an industry in which he, for all intents and purposes, could be considered a lubricant that helps this incredibly intricate and highly complex machine of life, living, and work roll on. Ricardo Rivera is a fully-fledged Japanese translator with his own business based in Hiroshima Prefecture, Japan. After growing up in Sacramento, California, and attending UC Berkeley, international living and working came a calling. Ricardo's track to translation, however, could be traced to his early years of being born in Tucson, Arizona, near the border of Mexico, where many residents flip back and forth between Spanish and English. His first language was Spanish, which eventually was supplanted by English. Now, his yearning to connect with his roots drove him in later years to learn Spanish more fluently, where he studied literature in both English and Japanese at UC Berkeley. His classes included linguistics, history, and even translation courses. Fast forward to his arrival in Japan in 2006, where his purview of the Japanese language and society at that point was limited to sushi and maybe the word arigato from the 80s song, Mr. Roboto. This lack of basic knowledge drove Ricardo to delve into Japanese language study during his first few years in Japan. And what captured his attention more than anything was the fact that the Japanese writing system and language as a whole really offers no commonalities with English or Spanish. That challenge, according to Ricardo, was refreshing, engrossing, but quite difficult. And gradually, his immersion into the culture through stints as an English language teacher and his enrollment into a proper Japanese language course eventually led Ricardo to attain the highest certification level relating to Japanese language proficiency. This, in turn, amounted to finding employment with a Japan-based engineering firm within their international sales department, where his role was acting as a liaison between the company's office and clients in the Silicon Valley. Finally, those additional opportunities to further build his translation skills and abilities revealed a pathway to work as a freelance translator, and then eventually his founding of his own translation and interpretation business, where he has been at it for nearly 15 years. So with that compelling backstory to Ricardo, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to get into this. Yes, yes, me too. All right. Well, the first segment here is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And this is a segment, as my listeners will know, we basically just kind of read off or I read off a definition of the profession. And I like to do this for a couple of reasons. One, it brings everyone up to speed in terms of what the profession is all about. But then also, too, I think it offers like a nice jumping off point for the guest to kind of notice or perhaps notice any of the things that might not be in the definition that are definitely part of the job. Sound good? 
Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Okay. So I've got translator. And again, this is coming from Wikipedia. I'm just going to read that off for you. And okay. uh, yeah, let me know what you think. So here it goes. Translator. Competent translators show the following attributes. A very good knowledge of the language written and spoken from which they are translating the source language. An excellent command of the language into which they are translating the target language. Familiarity with the subject matter of the text being translated. Finely tuned sense of when to metaphrase, which means translate, and when to paraphrase, so as to assure true rather than spurious equivalence between the source and target language texts. A competent translator is not only bilingual, but bicultural. A language is not merely a collection of words and rules of grammar and syntax for generating sentences but also a vast interconnecting system of connotations and cultural references whose mastery, writes linguist Mario Pei, comes close to being a lifetime job. There we go. Pretty wordy, I know. Covers a lot. What do you think? That it does. That it does. Um, I suppose that the last bit there where you quote the linguist, um, that the profession comes close to being a lifetime job, it's, uh, it's quite true. I think most people... Um, regardless of how competent you are, I mean, you could never really know every single word or phrase in, in maybe not only in your own language, but in two languages. So um, it is kind of a lifetime study um, for a person constantly learning, um, adapting. Yeah. So in that sense, it's kind of, it's good because you're, you're constantly learning different new, new things, new phrases, meeting new people. Um, reading new texts from a variety of different um, areas. So it is in that, in that sense, I, I think, um, I think most translators would, would agree with that last uh, statement. But before we kind of delve into what a translator is or what translation is, I think one important, don't want to say the word misconception, but it's often understood um, by the populace where the word translation refers to one thing. Um, and most people kind of think of a person speaking two different languages or something like that as a translator, where in fact, translation in the industry usually refers to the written word. So somebody actually translating text from one language that you pointed out is called the source language um, into another text called um, the target language. Um, so written word is usually referred to, uh, translation usually refers to the written word, and then interpretation usually refers to somebody who's speaking going back and forth between two different languages. Um, that's one, I think, um, specific uh, uh, definition that we try to adhere to, especially in the industry, because if somebody says, I need a translation, I automatically think of a written translation. Or if somebody comes to me and says, I need some interpretation, I know exactly it's somebody actually going somewhere where they're in between two parties trying to connect them. Um, so, yeah. Which which do you spend more time on within your business? Um, that's so. Up until a few years ago, um, I was I mainly kind of stuck with translation um, for, to be honest, for one major reason, um, and that was because I had uh, kids who just came onto the scene. Okay, and most of the interpretation requires you to go somewhere else to go on site to a an office building in another city to a, a venue for an event. Mm. Um, those kinds of business trips 
And maybe I think for some people who want to kind of go experience that, that's great. But for me, I was kind of trying to provide more support at home. So Fair enough, um, yeah. I decided to stay, stay closer to the translation, the written aspect of it. Okay. Okay. Um, then about five years ago, an opportunity came across here in my town. That was kind of a big project. It was a big interpreting project. And I jumped on board to that. And, and um, so now over the past few years, I would say it's closer to about maybe a 60, 40 split, 40% of the time, interpreting 60% translation now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'd imagine the two, I mean, of course the, the skill set is quite similar. Um, I would assume, right. At its core, but the demands required by each, I could see being quite different, you know, being in an interpretation role, being in the moment, you know, people looking to you instantaneously, looking for that meaning of what was just spoken by another individual. Whereas, of course, doing the translating, perhaps in a home office or wherever remotely, you, you know, you have deadlines, of course, it's acknowledged, but also at the same time, it's maybe a little bit more at your pace. You know, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just like anybody else. Uh, when you're imagine, imagine you have a significant other, a partner, if you will. and uh, Maybe this not might not be the most appealing example. Imagine you get into a fight and you want to say something to them. Imagine if you calm down, you have a perfect, uh, a long thought process. You get everything you want down on paper. You refine it. You say exactly what you want to say on the paper. You can write a letter. You can actually edit it, you know, and say, this is what I want to say. And then you, you literally communicate that perfectly in the letter, right? Because you have the This time. is sounding really familiar, by the way, but yeah, continue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the time to to modify and say it exactly how you want to say it on paper. Whereas, as you point out, uh, when you're interpreting in the moment, um, it's just you're on the fly. Yeah. Um, somebody says something to you. Let's say somebody says something to you that you don't fully understand or that you don't know that word in the opposite language. Yeah. Um, you have to be you have to think on your feet really quickly. I think, yeah, as you said, at, at its core you're mastering two different languages and you're manipulating two different languages. So in that sense, there is a commonality between the two of interpreting and translation. But um, in terms of a person who likes to interpret versus a person who likes to translate, the latter means that people who who more uh, engrossed in translation tend to be more methodical, Mm. perfectionists, Mm. um, people who like to write, um, whereas interpreters tend to be a little bit more uh, outgoing, uh, people who tend to be a little bit more chatty. It uh, sounds almost like an, you know, extrovert or introverted, extroverted sort of dichotomy, sort of splitting the two or splitting the profession down the middle. Yeah. I think it's not uncommon to use that, uh, between the two roles. Um, I mean, if you had a shy interpreter, and yeah these two parties want to communicate it's not really gonna it's not gonna go well yeah i mean yeah like hearing this right now of course it makes complete sense but it's not something i ever would have really considered i mean that sort of that split down the middle and it's almost like two different types of personalities you know that 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 more extrovert is going into say the interpretation side of things where somebody who is a little bit more you know into themselves and in their own world you know might be uh sticking to the uh the translation. Okay. All right. Even in even in that sense, like, I think I got when I started to have a little bit more interpretation in my in my kind of daily uh, tasks and stuff like that. I think that prior to that, I was I, I tended to be quite focused and mm. 
in my in my work and not really <laughs> recognize the outside world. So I think it provided a lot more balance for me as well. Okay. Oh, excellent. I think that kind of gives everyone a, a really good picture um, of, of the profession just from a general standpoint. And I'm glad you addressed that early on because I think it's going to really kind of like, you know, help us explore this topic or this profession a little bit more uh, right out of the gate. So was there really quickly before we move on to the next segment, was there anything from that definition from Wikipedia that was missing you felt? Uh, I don't think necessarily that was missing. I would say, I mean, I think you could expand um, quite a bit on one of the points there where it talks about um, pointed out translating literally mm. or more figuratively, or okay. if you will, paraphrasing, I think it was the comment that was made. And yeah. um, in interpretation, um, paraphrasing is almost uh, essential. Um, and to be quite honest, my, my style of interpreting probably isn't the standard um, in the industry. Most people try to adhere exactly to what the person's saying and almost say it word for word when they're interpreting, which is in the industry is standard and usually uh, important to, to do. Um, I think I try to kind of paraphrase a little bit more as much as I can in the moment, right? Because you know, obviously you're, there's, there's time limitations and constraints. For example, there's what's called um, simultaneous interpreting or consecutive interpreting. So simultaneous is obviously while the person is speaking, you're actually speaking right, right along with them. Consecutive means somebody says something, you kind of like summarize it and then, you know, repeat, repeat it right after they finish speaking. So um, I don't do simultaneous. Um, I know some people do, but that's that. I don't know if my, my mind is a flexible enough for fast <laughs> enough to do like that. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. But um, I think paraphrasing um, is absolutely essential in, yeah. in interpreting um, um, because you really can't, you really have to get the jinx of what somebody's saying versus focusing too much on the words. You need to get what, what is their intent? What are they trying to say? And make sure that that, that the underlying connotations and what they're trying to emphasize is relatively communicated to the other party in the other language. Um, and then even in, in translation, um, when you're talking about literally translating something, for example, let's use an easy example, like a, a date. Okay. Um, you know, you might write a date in a certain format. I might write a date in a certain format. You being from Canada, me being from uh, California in the States. Somebody from England might write a different way. So depending on the target, who you're, who you're translating for, what audience you're translating for, you also have to keep in mind, um, you know, those kinds of little, little uh, mm. details, details. Mm. Intricacies, if you will. I yes. Guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Well, why don't we move on over into the first segment or second segment here, uh, something called a Q&A discovery. I've got a few more questions we're going to fire off at you. Um, but the first one here, I'm going to lead off with a quote, actually. And I came across this one from an American translator, Norman Shapiro, um, who basically says that a good translation is like a pane of glass. You only notice when there are little imperfections, scratches, bubbles. And of course, ideally, there shouldn't be any. Uh, it should never call attention to itself. I mean, what do you think of that? I think in um, the ideal tr interpreter, I'm going to use the interpreter for just for a moment. Mm. Um, I think that would be great is if you, if you could literally, if somebody was talking, you could, you could speak, speak for them and the listener would not even think that somebody was, something was being interpreted. Right. Um, in the translation sense, I think 
um, when I've translated uh, whatever text, but let's say it's a marketing marketing material, like a pamphlet for a product, um, yeah. an introduction to some kind of new product for, for a company. Um, a lot of times as natives, for example, a native English speaker, you read a text, especially being here in Japan, and you know that it was originally written in Japanese right away because it just sounds awkward or unnatural and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, Mr. Shapiro's uh, allusion to just kind of having a pane of glass. So you, you're, you don't want, you don't want to give the impression that there was an original language. Yeah. yeah. You want to make it as natural sounding as possible. So both in interpreting as well as in, in translating. Um, I think that is the, um, the ultimate goal um, that sometimes you feel like you've reached and other times you feel like you haven't. Um, and it's a constant battle um, to try and to try and almost make yourself invisible or make the medium invisible, whether it be, uh, you know, translation interpretation so that the, it's communicated uh, perfectly. Mm. Yeah. In, in kind of researching for this, I came across, you know, a few different ideas towards interpretation and translation. One of them was just that, you know, with this Norman Shapiro uh, and how he defined it. And then a different take on all of this, which I found equally fascinating, was the the role of agency within translation so or interpretation. So how, for example, an interpreter or a translator will take a word or an idea and put it into another language because oftentimes like quite frankly even within Japanese of course as you would well know and there's some words that just don't easily translate over into another language yeah. so in terms of taking that and then putting it into a form that makes sense to others um yeah I mean there, there certainly is a role of agency there and a good example of this was uh back in 2018 I'm sure you'd recall this I mean it was words that were heard around the world with uh President Trump of all people <laughs> Who made that that famous comment uh, referring to some other countries around the world as being shithole countries, right? And, you know, what was interesting about this, though, and this kind of illustrates this role of agency, was that different countries took that interpretation and kind of watered it down while others, you know, amped it up. So, for example, I think Taiwan, they had a translation of that as something like, uh, what, what was it? I have a note here. Um, countries where birds don't lay eggs. That was the translation to Taiwanese. And then in Japan, they put it across as countries that are like dirty toilets. So I mean, like, yeah, there's a lot of different ways like you, you can, you know, take these words and put them, you know, put them out there in a lot of different contexts, I guess, if you will. And uh, yeah, that that role of agency really plays a big role in terms of how people are gonna, you know, look at things, it colors sort of the view of a person or of a, a set of ideas. I found that that again, returning to this idea of agency within translation or interpretation is being quite interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a your example illustrates a, a an important aspect. Um, although we want to make ourselves invisible and communicate as close as possible and communicate the idea from the original speaker or the original written text as close as possible to the uh, target language, you still um, have colored glasses. You still look at things between from your own perspective and um, use your own experiences and your own language background to um, communicate those ideas. So I think to an extent, you always are going to maybe unintentionally put in your own biases and prejudices into what you're seeing and doing. 
whether, like you said, whether you're intentionally doing that at times, not you per se, but anyone, or whether it's just you, you're not even noticing it, you know, which is also quite compelling to, to, to think. Obviously, about. I can give anecdotes more on the intentional aspect. For example, your 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 anecdote about uh, President Trump referring to other countries um, in that way. Um, so I recently have been involved for the last year in these kind of intense uh, financial discussions between these two companies who one, one company's um, making claims against another company. And, um, and some of those discussions are quite heated, to be honest. Um, and as hard as it is, I still, and I don't know that not all the, most interpreters probably wouldn't do this, but I try to read into how much the speaker uh, wants me to put the emotion into what he's saying. So um, I try, you know, sometimes they're just letting off steam. Uh, sometimes they're, um, they want the other person to know how angry they are. So then they just want it said as, as is. So if I find myself where I, I'm not, I'm also been doing this for a long time with, with these particular groups. So I'm quite familiar with all the people in, the, in both parties. Um, but if I'm not sure, sometimes they even ask, I'm like, do you want me to say it? as strong as you just said it or do you want me to water it down a little bit um and sometimes um when i find that they're just kind of yelling back and forth for a little while i kind of tone it down to to make it more to make the discussion more fruitful and constructive not not necessarily watering down the message but communicating it in a way where the other person can see what they're what the other why the other person's frustrated or something like that um yeah, and not so confrontational sometimes, right, you know. Right. Um, but that that again is not necessarily a sole requisite or even advised uh, way to to interpret. But I find that in certain circumstances, it's important to um, intentionally um, use my role to foment um, constructive discussion towards a certain goal. And in fact, I think uh, interpreter that was doing the job I was doing, they actually went through a number of different translators and interpreters before me. Um, and I think they enjoyed my kind of, um, my style of, uh, as more of a, an MC versus just a strict interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I mean, that's something that I, again, I, I never would have really imagined where like a, a translator or interpreter has their own personality, which is injected into the actual profession and almost their own flair, if you will, and how that can really have an influence, like you just said. I mean, the previous interpreter perhaps wasn't doing a good job of maybe managing the situation and reading the room, and that maybe led to his or her demise and, you know, your opportunity to, to kind of take over. And yeah, it's not something I would have ever imagined where personality, the personality of the interpreter per se, would play such an important role to the success or failure of you know, of an interaction. So it's, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Industry standard is usually you try to make yourself invisible. So you're not really um, interjecting yourself to, um, to color the message or the communication in between the two parties. But um, in my experience, especially with highly sensitive, like high tension kind of scenarios, I think it's important because you are the only bridge between the two sides of the river. Um, it is important that you get to both sides. Right, right. I mean, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, you were just there cleanly interpreting back and forth. But as we know, I mean, this is not how interactions, communications go 100% of the time. So, yeah. 
Okay. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, I do have another quick question here, and this one is a bit more factually based, I would say. Um, really quickly, could you outline a little bit in terms of, say, the flow of, you know, as far as industry standards go, like workflows, timelines, even pricing structures, just really quickly, like we don't have to go into the great detail here, but just kind of bring everyone up to speed, including myself, I'd be really curious about those types, types of aspects. Okay, so the work, the work um, hot flows and timelines and pricing structures are, are usually, so in the industry, let's say you have company A they have a need for a, a translation task. Okay. They have a, let's say they have a website and they want to make it a, a Japanese company has a website. They want to make an English version of that website. So they have to take all the content on that website and they have to translate it into English. Now they, they first would send, they would send that company would request it usually to uh, this task to a, a translation agency. Okay. A translation interpretation agency. And usually those kinds of companies don't have internal translators and interpreters actually it's usually a bunch usually um the staff is primarily made up of project managers so they get that task and then those project managers basically find uh they have a pool of translators and interpreters that they use and then they assign the ask to one of those uh freelance translators or interpreters um and uh the, the company a will say hey we have we need it by this point you know, this next week, next Tuesday, is that possible? They say, yes. Okay, give me a quote. You wish them a quote. Uh, they all say, once, once the timeline, the deadline and the price of it is determined, then they pass it to the, to the uh, translator. He translates it or she translates it, excuse me, and then it's handed in. Um, typically, in terms of the timeline, I would like to make one comment about this. It's pretty funny is in, with, with regard to translation, that is the written aspect of it. Um, if it takes a week to write something in the original language. Normally, it's going to take an equal amount of time to, to translate that, that text. Mm -hmm. But most people overlook this idea. And they, even though they wrote it in five days, they want it translated in like two. So um, the bane of a translator's existence right there, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. So that's, that's, uh, that's something that's, there's always a deadline that's, faster than what you want right. i think that's that is a, a constant so to speak um yeah and, and the pricing the way it works usually is uh you know uh depending on the language combination so in, in this sense obviously if we're talking about my primary language competition is english and japanese they usually charge there's there's kind of two formats they do they usually charge by the word or by the character depending on what the source text is so if it's if it's english charge by the source word how many words in the source text then they assign a value and then that you know per word or whatever um for japanese it's per character usually um the other way is usually by page which is another way to do it but um yeah okay oh, that's interesting that yeah no no um yeah I, I think it's just interesting to hear kind of the intricacies there a little bit more deeply um which kind of leads into the the next question i have here um, and this is going into the Japanese side. Uh, I was able to dig this up from the U.S. Foreign Services Institute, and they ranked Japanese as the most difficult language for native English speakers to learn. Now, returning to this price point, I'm curious about, because of that, does that offer, say, somebody like yourself, like, I don't know, you're, you're at a premium pricing level, say, versus someone who's translating from... I don't know, Spanish to English or French to English is, does it make a difference? Yes. Supply and demand, supply and demand. Um, 
uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, first to to make comment on Japanese being the, the hardest language, uh, one of the hardest languages in the world to learn for uh, native English speakers, I would say, um, you know, I don't know if you can use it as a superlative as the hardest, but it's probably pretty far up there just because of the complexities of their actual written language. The spoken aspect of, I think it's comparable to other languages, but the written aspect is definitely um without going into a lot of details it's it's quite it's quite uh, demanding now in terms of how that affects uh the premium price structure so um i obviously did a little bit of spanish and english translation and interpretation before but um the because there's so many people who can speak spanish and english in the world and because of globalization online presence you can get people in different countries all over the world to do things now because you're on a computer it's really driven the price down so because there's so many people who can do it so it's it's let's say it's um let's say we will assign it a value of one okay then the number of native english speakers who can speak japanese is actually quite low <laughs> so because there's such a high demand for somebody in my particular com- with my particular language combination um i can ask for a pretty high rate so I don't want to assign a specific number, but let's no, say no, it's at least don't. double or triple what a standard rate is, probably. Yeah. So there is a payoff there. The time, so for me, yeah, energy yeah, yeah. it takes to learn the language, <laughs> there is a there is a reward right. there at the end. Right. Okay. All right. All right. That's helpful to know. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. I and mean, really quickly here too. I'm one last question in this segment. And this is more on the personal side. I mean, what what aspects of your line of work, you know, bring you pleasure? You know, what, what, what makes it worthwhile to do all of this? Um, I think somebody who goes in first to, into, into translation. So I think those people um, who stay with it for kind of long-term really enjoy the, the task uh, um, of reading and writing. Um, and you would, have to, you would have to really enjoy that creative aspect of writing and also learning, reading new material and learning about it. Um, if you're not someone who doesn't like, enjoy that kind of process, then um, I don't think that you would find yourself in the career for very long. So I think that um, my pleasure personally, in, in terms of translation, I love learning about things I would otherwise never read about. Um, now, the breadth of stuff that I, I read um, on a monthly or yearly basis is just unbelievable i mean i could read technical things uh, specifications manuals about um, random machinery used in factories or used in an engine or stuff like that to um you know uh literary uh, excerpts from a novel or something like that or, or advertising marketing material um that tends to be a bit more flowery catchphrases so like you know copy essentially yeah Yeah. like for example like 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 nike you know just do it i remember i was talking to this one company um in a neighboring uh prefecture they were wanted to come up with this like good phrase for the logo of their company and they're like like what what kind of field do you want what what were you looking for and they're like oh we're looking something like really simple like nike and Although the company had nothing to do with athletic wear or anything like that, um, you know, it kind of told me, expressed a lot to me that this is their image of this kind of short, you know, just do it, you know, like, so, okay. you know, that, right. that's, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a fun thing. I was actually. about to say, that's sounds fun, yeah. 
It is actually. Um, so they usually get, so they actually, when, when the company says, okay, we want to do this logo or we want a quick short phrase uh, that encapsulates this, whether it be a product or a company, whatever, um, they usually pay pretty big premium. Um, that sounds a lot up front, but you actually put a lot of time and thought. Yeah, it's a lot of creativity the almost coming Yeah, there is. That. Like a different yes, soft skill that's being injected into the entire yes. process. Yeah. I actually enjoy that quite a bit. Um, it's fun to think creatively and see how they say it. Then you have to explain what you wrote and see yeah, if that yeah, fits yeah. what they it's want. Like you're like that, it, so. In a way. Yeah, it exactly. Them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's a really fun part, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, something would might be overlooked in this whole you know line of work. I mean, at least for me, yeah. just discovering it yeah. right now. Yeah, that's cool. Um, interpreting, I think um, one of the things that is very kind of pleasurable is when you have two parties who are just not connecting or who are just, uh, you know, are trying to resolve a problem or an issue. And if you finally get to that point where the both parties are happy with the way things have done, you're obviously playing a pivotal role in their communication and then reaching that compromise if there's one. Um, so that, that's kind of a, that's a good, when you've reached that point, you're like, okay, finally. Satisfaction. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So especially with the yeah, a contentious sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Conversely, really quickly, I'm guessing just biggest challenges perhaps or drawbacks could be the deadlines or am I wrong? Is there anything else? I would challenging aspects. I think, yeah, I think deadlines is obviously, as I mentioned previously, is a constant battle, but I think another point of difficulty that I think experienced translators to do i hope they do is when you're first starting out in the industry you have lots of questions about different things maybe lack of confidence because you haven't done a whole lot of it yet um i was i think in the beginning i was really afraid to ask questions about the text because mm. that would like almost show them that maybe i didn't fully understand what they're trying to almost say exposing yourself oh, yeah exposing, exposing like a yourself weakness yeah. or vulnerability yeah. or something like that right right now i think i've done a 300 you know 180 degree turn i'm like completely embracing it it's like if i have the slightest question about the content or the intent of what the writer's trying to say then i will say what do you mean or is this what you mean and i freely ask these questions because to be honest you know everybody's got their own quirks in writing and um, you can't be expected to understand exactly what everybody's saying all the time um, even if it's your native language sometimes it's like well what is he trying to say here you know so I would encourage translators and interpreters all the time. If they never understand right away, ask. Yeah, that's um, going to save you time down the tracks later anyway, probably. If you go down a path that was completely off base and it's going to come back and bite you in the rear end later. So, I mean, I think in any profession, people sometimes want to hide any insecurities, you know, they didn't understand. Something. Well, especially in my industry, it's really important to say, okay, I need to know exactly what you're saying. So, as the years have gone by, obviously, I felt way more confident to say, okay, I don't know what you say. Can you say it another way if I'm interpreting? Or in writing, I you know, make a comment to the writer. I say, look, I think this is what you mean, but can you just clarify? So, yeah, uh, I think that's a challenging aspect. Can't always fully understand 100% of what uh, the speaker or the writer is saying. So it's just important to ask questions. Um, okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, why don't we move over into a new segment here? It's something called a water cooler story. And basically here, I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their profession. So what have you got for us today, Ricardo? I think uh, one of the uh, the, the most um, enjoying aspects of, of this kind of career path is you never really know what's going to happen. 
uh, especially in, in interpreting. I remember um, this was, a, oh God, I want to say this was about uh, six months ago or so. Um, they, there was a teleconference call I was involved on and, um, and they were going over some mechanical issues. And one party was making a presentation on, um, in power, using PowerPoint. And they were using a shared screen so all the parties online could see and whatnot. And, um, and I, can't, I can't recall the exact um, equipment that was being used, but I just remember that there was a caption next to a picture. They're just trying to describe what the process is. And they said, um, they used a phrase, during the erection phase, now, to a standard native English speaker, I think most people would kind of balk at this kind of choice of words. And um, obviously, the original was written in Japanese, and uh, somebody had internally had translated it. Um, I had not seen it until the actual teleconference. And um, I tried to hide my initial reaction of, of wanting to laugh hysterically, but... <laughs> Um, at the same time, I could hear the other party on the line kind of muffle, muffle their laugh a little bit. And then I, I, uh, I put the, uh, the call on mute for just a few moments. And I explained to the guy who was leading the presentation that while when you erect a building that might be used uh, without that particular subject or, or uh, context, <laughs> um, sometimes that word means something else. Um, and when I explained that to him with, with the call on mute to the other party so they didn't hear, um, when I explained that to my Japanese, uh, the people I was with at the, at the meeting, I mean, I think they were laughing for like 10 minutes straight. So <laughs> it was, you know, we had this kind of intense meeting. We were, we were just about to start this intense meeting. And then all of a sudden this word completely lightened the mood. Yeah, so, um, totally. It was really, fun, it was really funny to, to see how one little word had changed the entire ambiance of, of, and... of the teleconference. I mean, I could not, like, yeah, That's internally, I was laughing hysterically. Yeah. I was trying to play down my, my initial reaction, not yeah. doing maybe the best job, but again, you never know what's going to happen. In, in, true uh, enough. True enough. In, That's a perfect, perfect example of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess um, you always want to feel, uh, as a translator, you always, I don't think you seek um, feeling appreciated, but everybody wants to feel appreciated. I have a special relationship with one of my um, we call them cross-checkers in the industry. So you have a translator who translates the material. Then usually after that, you have somebody who reads everything, both in the original text and then the translated text. Um, they're called cross-checkers or quality checkers. I have a special relationship with mine. And um, he often writes me comments like, oh, I like this translation. Like, you know, so it's this kinds of like, usually I wouldn't get that kind of feedback because nobody, okay, I got the translations done. But, you know, I have a special relationship with my, uh, my cross-checker. So he always sometimes gives that. So it's, it's nice to hear a little bit, you know, when you get compliments like that. Um, but I think that the, uh, that I think the best, one of the best feelings is when, not when I'm needed actually per se, although it's appreciated sometimes, but when I'm not needed. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was on site in a, in a, an interpreting job and there was a, a gentleman from abroad who was in Japan who was, um, giving instructions to the local workers on how to build something. And, um, and in the beginning, that was always needed. Like, like if I wasn't there, they could not communicate, you know? And, um, 
you know, a 30 minute, maybe, maybe I was doing something else with somebody else. I come back, they've been trying to get something straight for 30 minutes. I was there, you know, and it finally got expressed and understood on both parties and they could proceed. But, but it was funny uh, after a while uh, on this project, um, a particular gentleman from abroad and the foreman for the Japanese crew, um, they had gotten along so well after a while that sometimes they didn't mean to me. They were joking and talking. The Japanese forum didn't speak a lick of English. And the guy from abroad didn't speak any Japanese, but somehow they had managed to form this relationship and joke and laugh and get, you know, complex engineering terms back and forth. Somehow they were able to do that. And um, actually, it was kind of fun to see that, you know, even though, you know, you want to feel needed. It's fun to see them be able to communicate and, and do that without me. So, you know, that kind of cultural exchange. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, it's interesting yeah. how, like, how, the lang well, two different languages are kind of like blended together in a sense that it becomes almost its own third language where these two people, probably anyone else observing this from afar would have no idea what is going on. But these two individuals had worked out the rules and they had got these few keywords down in each other's language, perhaps. And Right, right, right. Exactly. That's exactly, that's a perfect summary. And in, in, in fact, it's like, it's kind of a point that I wanted to make and allude to was that, um, as much as it's important to hang up on the details of translation and getting the right words, appropriate words, maybe an interpretation, in my experience, as long as there's intent on both sides to communicate, you will be able to communicate. Mm, that's um, interesting. Obviously, interesting. Uh, the enabler of the translator, the role of the translator and interpreter is kind of to enable that and foment that communication. But yeah, I think right. as long as there's intent on both parties, uh, usually there should be a problem. That's actually a really interesting segue because normally in, normally in this segment here, I just let the, the guest tell a story here. But it, again, in researching this talk, um, I came across this other little bit that, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to share a quick story here. And it's quite relevant to what you were just saying. Um, and it's also relevant in the sense that you know, this conversation is taking place in Japan, you being based in Hiroshima Prefecture. So basically, 1945, you know, Japan is at war with the Allies. And at that time, I guess the U.S. War Department had written up this proclamation and sent it over to the Japanese side. And basically, the proclamation was saying something along the lines of like, you know, we want you to surrender, it was surrender sort of ultimatum, you, you do you surrender or else. And I guess the Japanese foreign minister at the time took this, but he didn't read it or he didn't take it as an ultimatum. He took it more as the U.S. wanting to negotiate. And so the foreign minister took it to the Japanese prime minister, who then read it, and he didn't really want to make any comments on it. However, it did get into the Japanese press. And the way it played out there was that the Americans want to negotiate and speak with us. And the, it was a laughable matter within the Japanese public at the time. I thought, no, this is ridiculous. And then apparently the very next day, the Japanese prime minister held a press conference and he, he wanted to communicate. It had been later revealed where the prime minister said he wanted to reveal or he wanted to say no comment with like a neutrality sort of tone, you know, imbued into that statement. But he chose a word in Japanese, uh, mokusatsu, which in the context of what he was referring to in, in, in this document was basically interpreted as killed with silence we're just it was almost like ignoring it with contempt and that was exactly how the uh, the american side took it the american translators took it from this press conference 
the following day, it ran front page news in the New York Times that um, the Japanese had basically, you know, were ignoring this ultimatum completely. And in doing so, the fate of Hiroshima was sealed, according to some. Now, I mean, like historians can also say, I mean, of course, there's several things that led to that, you know, tragic event, obviously. And it's not just this poor exchange between the two sides, but also at the same time, it's hard not to ignore that. And uh, returning to your point of this intent, wanting to have an intent to communicate there. um, Yeah, it would seem at least in this example, it wasn't necessarily there. They weren't trying to... uh, to really source out or figure out exactly what each other meant and uh, with tragic uh, consequences. Yeah. 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 I just thought that was worth sharing considering the relevance of all of this and also just, yeah, I mean, what you just stated. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I mean, um, you know, one word, one tone, um, a phrase, um, making something into a, a semi rhetorical question that should have been, said as a statement you know but there's all sorts of different nuances and quirks and yeah. how we speak and in our tones how we finish a sentence or how we start a sentence or what we what words we stress in the middle of that sentence all of those things are, are obviously play an important role in communication and especially when you're interpreting or translating something um and um that kind of miscommunication doesn't surprise me at all to be quite honest yeah um, well apparently there's no I, actual word in japanese that is like just neutral in tone for like no comment with that with neutrality imbued into it there isn't and uh yeah i think that perhaps that was part of the problem there right and then again we spoke about it earlier you know like there's the role of agency with the translator there of trying to figure out perhaps you know what are you exactly trying to say here like do you want this tone to come across in an aggressive manner or do you want it more neutral because yeah yeah, it's going to set off a different chain of events or reactions if you're not careful you know, and yeah, whether or not you want absolutely. that. So it was just, it's fascinating. It's absolutely, absolutely. Fascinating. Absolutely. And, and, and that, and those, those small words you said can have uh, dire consequences or can, can lead to unexpected outcomes or not that, uh, the outcomes that were supposed to be, that were intended per se. Um, what I find fascinating is that uh, you brought this up and you kind of uh, tied it to what I said about intention. So I would say if there was a real intention on both parties to make a peace offering and come to some kind of compromise, they would have done it in my opinion. Um, that's, of course, I don't know all the whole background. Um, when I'm involved, as I mentioned earlier about these kind of intense discussions between two parties, if they really want to calm down and come to a compromise, they will. You know, it's like the intent, if the intent is there, they will get there, you know? So, yeah, maybe the intent wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. We'll never fully know, will we? All right. Well, I do want to go into our last segment here and it's something called a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking towards the future, normally trends, uh, predictions relating to uh, the profession. And, you know, I'd like to lead off with this thought. I mean, of course, tech in all industries is continually evolving within yours. It's no different. In fact, just this past week, I see that um, Meta, also known as uh, Facebook, uh, just announced that they have plans now of introducing software in the near future, you know, AI based that's going to allow for translation, um, you know, on their platforms to, to help, you know, enhance communications around the world. And of course, we have things like Google Translate, and I'm sure a slew of other software providers. So with the acceleration of all of this, ostensibly, you know, it could be, you know, considered a threat, in a sense, to people like yourself, you know, eliminating that human element within it all. You know, what would be your take? on that 
I suppose I should probably think of it as a threat, but I really don't. Um, they have, they've had, um, I mean, you've seen tremendous progress in the industry uh, within the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. I was, I was talking to, a few years ago, I remember talking to um, a gentleman who worked at another kind of uh, translation agency a company. And uh, he was explaining to me how back in the 80s, he used to have um, a wall full of um, encyclopedias in different fields like engineering and med- medical journals and dictionaries and for terminology. Um, and these days, you know, everything you can just type something online and figure out what a word means or what, how it's uh, generally used or et cetera, et cetera. So back in that time, they always had internal translators on their own team and their, and their staff. And now obviously they outsource everything that to freelance. So always we've seen a, a pretty big change, a shift in the translation industry uh, um, due to the online resources available. There's two huge um, kind of uh, trends right now uh, with computers. Um, one is a software where um, kind of the industry and it's industry standard software is called the cat tool. It's called computer aided or assisted uh, translation tool. And what it does is it memorizes what you're translating. So if that phrase or term or sentence comes up again in the document or material that you're translating, it pops out to let you know that you've used it once. So it helps with uniformity uniformity of language and terminology. Efficiency, it makes it super more. I mean, you could probably, let's say the standard person could do 2,000, 3,000 words in a day. That ups it another 20, 30% at least. Um, and these tool, this cat tool has been standard for a number of years now. But what's uh, what's more interesting is this interesting and slightly disconcerting, uh, disconcerting, excuse me, um, is what's called uh, machine translation, as you pointed out uh, with Google Translate. Um, now, instead of a translation fee, a rate, uh, so many cents per word or yen per word or whatever, um, they have what's called machine translation post editing or um, MTPE, I believe is the acronym. And um, what it does is companies want to save money. They want to do stuff. uh, They have high volumes of material and they want to save money. So they have this automatic translation system to translate everything. But as you know, if you've ever put it in something, Google Translate does come out perfect. I think I know where you're going with this. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then they, uh, then instead of hiring a translator, they want to hire somebody to, uh, to edit the translated product that was used with this machine translation. And if you've ever tried it, it is really hard. Um, I tried to adapt in the beginning. I tried it a couple of times and it's like you end up trans retranslating everything uh, because it's really not there yet. Although the trend is still quite uh, there and there are many places are trying to push it. Um, the technology is not quite there for machine translation. I think there's too many factors involved. It's gonna have. It's gonna require, um, as you pointed out, AI. AI is gonna have to make a lot of uh, progress in order for that to be successful and supplant a human translator. Um, I think it's hard to say how many years away. I can't. I can't pr- pr- predict the uh, the pace of, of technology, but uh, we're not quite there yet. That's for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so either. I mean, we could even return to that uh, Wikipedia definition really quickly about um, you know the cultural aspects being part of the language and some of those points are not easily picked up on by something like ai like how are they exactly going to pick up on you know an idiosyncrasy within the culture 
that is being, you know, outwardly expressed in the language. I just, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just don't think it's there yet. And uh, probably these tools, as you'd explained, are just that. I mean, they could be really quite helpful to somebody like yourself, at least in terms of, you know, speeding up the process rather than interpret it as something where it's, oh, this is going to take my job. Like, I don't think probably people like yourself within the industry don't see it as that. It's more of, you know, an acknowledgement, like, yeah, keep, keep going, keep trying. Right, right, right. I mean, the, these cat tools are, you know, they're standard industry. I use them, whatever, the, to kind of help record what you've been doing in a document. But uh, these machine translations and using AI, I think, um, I mean, just using Japanese as an example, I mean, I could think of about five different ways to w- say the word I in Japanese. Okay. We say I in English, but we only say I, but in Japanese, we say it like five different ways. So depending on who's speaking, formally or informally you know situational so those kinds of factors there's so many that's just one word one letter and imagine if the complexity of a sentence the nuance of the speaker what he wants to say or he or she say uh, i don't i think it's going to be a, some time before we get there if it if it ever supplant i mean i'm not gonna say okay we're never gonna supplant it you know going on you know a movie like dune where you have this guy holding a a big rod where you speak and it comes out perfectly in the other language i mean we might get there someday, but I don't think we're there quite yet. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're safe for a little bit longer. Yeah, <laughs> like. at the very least, at the very least. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure. I think you've really been shining a light on the type of work that you do. And uh, I'm sure all listeners who are uh, tuning into this are going to have a much better idea of what it's all about, aside from that sort of surface level, you know, understanding. I I know I certainly do after going through this with you. So yeah, I wholeheartedly appreciate you and your time for coming on today. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And I uh, hope uh, we get more people in this profession. It's, it's, it can be a really fun and rewarding profession. All right. Well, excellent. Well, for those interested in learning more about Ricardo and his work, you can find and connect with him via his website, www.pacificumtranslation.com. This information will be in the show notes, so you will be able to access it there. And of course, today, if you like today's show, please be sure to share. Um, it really does help grow the show. Um, and also, too, I mean, I think the the more we understand one another, uh, I think the better it is you know, for all of us. You know, there's enough divide and tribalism within society at the moment. Hey, you know, we understand the frustrations, the joys of each other and what we're doing. Yeah, all the better. And um, then also, too, uh, something recent, the Life As A side, we did launch a YouTube channel. So you can go over there and check out other full video conversations like this one. Of course, as well please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. That stuff does help quite a bit. Finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.